Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio with host Jerry Prokopovich. Our program covers all aspects of Civil War history, from the battlefields to the home fronts, and features guest experts, plus insight from your host as they discuss the most critical period in American history. Now, here is your host, Jerry Prokopovich. Thanks and welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I am Jerry Prokopovich. Most people have heard the expression that history is written by the winners. Of course, anyone listening to this show who's read a few Confederate memoirs knows that that rule doesn't always apply to the Civil War. But sometimes it does, as perhaps when General Ulysses S. Grant wrote his memoirs. We'll talk with an author tonight who believes that General Grant took some liberties with the reputations of other generals to build up his own. The book is called General Grant and the Rewriting of History. The author is Frank Varney, and this is Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Tune in to the Voice America Variety Channel on the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Voice America Variety broadcasts a diverse array of topics, reaching a global community. Our experts come from all walks of life, and the topics they discuss are everything from current events, arts and entertainment, leadership, parenting, relationships, self-improvement, career advice, and a variety of other topics. Check us out today. You're sure to find something of interest. Voice America Variety. Talk on today's hot topics. Now you can take your favorite Voice America radio program with you anywhere. Sign up for our mobile app if you have an iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry. The Voice America interactive radio player, powered by Aircast, gives you the freedom to listen to any of our programs anywhere, live, and on demand. No registration is required. Listen to your favorite Voice America hosts and discover new ones. Download the Voice America mobile app for iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry, powered by Aircast. Visit the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at ecu Edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome to the show, Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, coming to you tonight from the Civil War Talk Radio World Headquarters Annex in my home office in Greenville, North Carolina, and thus not even having to disclaim speaking for East Carolina University, where the show normally originates. But today, East Carolina University is closed for the day. It snowed in Greenville last night, and um, the university closed at midday yesterday, uh, hours before the first flake descended in a uh, a fit of of excessive concern. We've got a few inches on the ground, and uh, we're closed up tight as a drum. It's been the harshest winter uh, around the country for many people uh, in, in many years. My alma mater at the University of Michigan had a snow day this past 
week or so, the alumni were quite outraged because we don't close at Michigan for, for weather. The last time this happened actually was when I was an undergraduate there in the 1970s. So uh, it's, it's that bad that they're closing in Ann Arbor. Here in Greenville, North Carolina, the sight of a flake on the radar screen is enough to prompt a closing, but all the Yankees, like myself, transplanted here are talking big about, oh, it's not a big deal. We know how to drive in snow, for example. <clears throat> Turns out we know how to drive in snow because the roads get plowed up north, so we're actually driving on dry uh, uh, pavement. The roads, there's maybe one snowplow in all of Greenville, and nobody's seen it, so there are, there are inches of packed snow on every road, busy or not. And it is actually a little more challenging than one might think. Nonetheless, we do know enough not to do what some of the locals are doing in our neighborhood, which is dragging their kids behind their pickup trucks tied onto sleds. And the, the danger and sheer right, reckless idiocy of that is hard to, to grasp. Uh, but if you've never seen snow, I guess uh, you take advantage of what you can do. So that's what's going on around here. Uh, the office is closed, the buildings are closed, but I'm uh, neither snow, etc. will delay Civil War talk radio. One thing that will delay it, however, is if a guest uh, is not available or able to uh, call in. Our guest is here tonight. I know that uh, we'll be with you in just a moment. Last week's guest, however, we, we did not have, and uh, I uh, apologize to you listeners for that, that we didn't have uh, a live show that happens occasionally, and uh, uh, unfortunately it happened uh, for the second time with the same guest, so as important as Gettysburg, the last invasion is, apparently we will have to learn, we'll have to read it for ourselves and hear the author's thoughts uh, elsewhere than on Civil War Talk Radio. But we will hear many other interesting people in the weeks ahead on uh, February 5th, next Wednesday, Martin Johnson joins us to talk about the Gettysburg Address in the original copies of it, which one Lincoln really used to give the address, what order they were written in. It's a topic that sounds technical but turns out to be fascinating, and I, I enjoyed reading that manuscript. I think you'll want to hear about it. We follow the next week with another book on the same topic, the Gettysburg Address. Jared Peatman joins us on Lincoln's birthday, February 12th. And we complete a Lincoln trifecta with Richard Carradine, author of Lincoln, A Life of Purpose and Power, one of the best books about Abraham Lincoln by far in the last 20 years. Uh, he'll be with us uh, coming, he's from, uh, normally teaches at Oxford, but he's here visiting the United States, will we'll be with us on February 19th. And looking ahead, we've got J. Michael Cobb talking about the battle at Big Bethel. Uh, in March, we've got Richard Slotkin on the long road to Antietam, and then it'll be time for spring break. We can all head down to Florida together and talk Civil War there. More shows will be scheduled after that. You can always find out what's going on from www.impedimentsofwar.org, the Civil War companion, talk radio companion website. Art Gaffney keeps things going there. And you can support the website and the show by going to that website and clicking on the donation button and uh, through the miracle of PayPal and Amazon and some uh, credit cards, uh, there's some, it gives me direct access to your bank account apparently. No, it gives me whatever you choose to give. Uh, it is a donation as tax season approaches. It's not tax deductible. It's 
not a charity. I don't have 501c3 status. I can use the money for anything I want, and I often do. Uh, so please feel free to contribute. The real purpose is to buy books for the show, the books that I read and talk about uh, with you on the show. So for the most part, that's where the money really does go. But there's no accountability. There's no transparency. Uh, just send me your money. And having moved on from the business part of the show, let's talk with tonight's guest. Uh, he is Professor Frank P. Varney, and he has written a book called General Grant in the Rewriting of History, subtitle, How the Destruction of General William S. Rosecrans Influenced Our Understanding of the Civil War. Uh, Dr. Varney, are you there? Yes, I am. Uh, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Uh, glad, glad you could join us. Um, uh, I, you and I have not met yet on the, the Civil War trail, but I hope we can use first names to oh, speed things along. Uh, call me Jerry, please. Sure. So, uh, you are, well, well let, let's start, as I often do with people I haven't had the, the pleasure of, of chatting with before. Uh, what got your interest in uh, the Civil War generally? Uh, at what point did you decide Civil War was something you wanted to study? Well, um, the Civil War, um, got, I picked up an interest in that when I was about 11 or 12 years old. The uh, Bruce Catton books had just come out, the Central uh, Civil War Centennial. And my dad's business partner gave, me, gave them to me for my birthday. And I was simply fascinated by them. I'd never, I've always loved history. I was raised in an environment where it was, it was part of the conversation. And uh, read the books, was fascinated by them, and read everything I could get my hands on for the next several years. Then went to college um, and kind of drifted away from it a little bit. Got involved in the working world, got married, um, began working for a living, Moved away from the, from the academic pursuits, got more interested in the uh, Second World War, things like that. And then a couple of things happened around the same time. Um, one was the Ken Burns Civil War series, which, re, which sparked my interest. And not terribly long after that was the movie Gettysburg, which sparked my interest in particular about General Lewis Armistead. Well, I, have a, I don't have a methodical approach to things, so what I decided to do was uh, refresh my memory on the Civil War. I did a little bit of research. I set up a timeline for myself. Um, of events, and I began to um, seek out what were considered the best books on each of these events and read them chronologically in terms of the event, uh, following the timeline, so that I was following the Civil War, you know, sort of in a logical order, and got fascinated by it, and sort of branched out from there. Uh, I had spent 22 years in the non-academic world, uh, much of it in the corporate world, and really needed a change decided to go back to college to become an educator, which is what I had always wanted to do, but as often happens, life sidetracks us. And all I intended to do was teach high school. Went back to school, did much better than the second time than I had the first time. Got an opportunity to, um, a couple of schools contacted me about getting a PhD, and I went up choosing Cornell. Went up there, had an absolutely incredible experience. Um, and one of the things I got interested in was the process of historical memory. Why we remember things the way we do? When it came time to pick a dissertation topic, uh, I had a list of things I was considering looking at, and one of them was a simple analysis of whether certain individuals were better than their historical reputation seems to warrant, whether they actually were better generals than we think they were. I had three, um, William S. Rosecrans, Joe Hooker, and um, Governor Kimball Warren. 
I set out to write about them. Now, my dissertation advisor, Dr. Joel Silvey, who was incredibly supportive through the entire process. The fact that he took on a, 40, a 41-year-old grad student in the first place was really pretty nice of him. <laughs> I was his last grad student, as it turned out. He retired uh, when it was just about wrapping up. I guess I burned the poor guy out. But anyway, um, he said to me, you do realize you may research these people, spend a few years at this and discover they were just as bad as we think they are. And I said, yeah, I get that. In that case, you know, I'll have learned something out of it. But what happened was I just happened to be rereading Grant's memoirs. Um, and I was interested in the fact he had a very negative slant on these individuals and a few others. Also around that time, historians, did the, what they do every few years, they rank the presidents, whether they need to be ranked or not. We have this compulsion to do it. And Grant was where he usually is, pretty much at the bottom, um, with the usual comments. Grant himself was a personally honest man, but a poor judge of character who surrounded himself with dishonest men. And the question I asked myself was, well, if he was such a poor judge of character, why do we seem to accept what he said about some about people in his memoirs? So I started investigating further, and at most I expected to find that maybe his judgments were a little flawed, that maybe he was wrong. And I didn't even, wasn't even sure I was going to find that. What I was surprised to find was that often what Grant was saying about these people was directly at odds with what everybody else was saying about them. I went back and dug around the primary sources, and I found instances where I'd read what Grant said about an event, and I'd read what three or four other people said about it, and it didn't sound like the same event. And that's kind of where the whole thing went from there. So uh, that's a long answer to a short question, but that's how cool. the Civil War, I got into the Civil War and how I got into this particular topic. Well, that is, uh, it, as you were talking, I, I was thinking that how similar our stories are in many ways. Uh, I also had worked you know, outside the academy before going back to grad school. Uh, my dissertation director uh, retired uh, while we were working, and, and uh, I was his last student also. So maybe there's, so there's the something going out. on here. Burned, burned him right out. Yeah. Uh, but I, I'm guessing uh, most, most professors would be happy to have uh, an, an older uh, student because they they pay attention to what they're doing. They get the job done. They, uh, they have better work habits. Oh, I um, love non-traditional students. Yeah. Let, let me. We're getting close to a break, so before sure. we dive into Grant, let me just ask a, a question about about your day job. I see you teach at uh, Dickinson State University. Where is that? That's in Dickinson, North Dakota, the western part of the state. Uh, small school. Uh, but it's really quite a good school, um, particularly as public universities go. Uh, when I got done with my, my degree, William Patterson University in, in New Jersey, where I had done my undergrad work, offered me a one-year, and I did that as a visiting assistant professor and went on the job market. I had half a dozen interviews lined up. Came out here. This was uh, the first of seven. Came out here, um, did the interview. Um, when I was offered the job, I contacted the other, other schools and said, I found where I want to be. Uh, DSU wow. is uh, really, it's, it's a beautiful campus, very nice um, young people that I work with, including some very fine scholars who just chose this because it's convenient for them. a lot of first-generation college students, which I was as well, a lot of non-traditional students, which I was. I have some wonderful colleagues. It's a very small department. I am actually half of the history department. Uh, <laughs> oh, <laughs> and I'm also uh, the director except... of the Honors and Leadership Program here. Hmm. Except for the size, it does sound similar to East Carolina in a lot of ways. We do have a lot of non-traditional students mm -hmm. and uh, great colleagues. Uh, we have closer to 25 in our department, professors in our department, but mm -hmm. that number is changing as, uh, yeah. as the world changes, but that's not, 
mm-hmm. our topic today. Well, sure. let me ask you a question, and, and before taking the answer, we'll take a short break so you can think about it. Sure. Um, in looking at these, this idea of Grant's memoirs as perhaps not being uh, as as accurate, um, did well, there are so many questions that occurred as I was reading your book, which is very provoking. Um, so I'll start with the biggest one. If if this is, if we stipulate just to get things started, that yes, Grant did mislead or exaggerate or dissemble in places, uh, the number one question, uh, the next question the lawyer would ask would be, why? Mm-hmm. Why did he do this? Mm-hmm. So we're going to take a short break right now. This is Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking today with Frank P. Barney, author of General Grant and the Rewriting of History. And we'll be back in just a minute with more of Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live. The leader in Internet talk radio, VoiceAmerica.com. Follow the Voice America Talk Radio Network on Twitter. We're at VoiceAmericaTRN. You'll get the latest fix on what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and general happenings that you should know about at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Now you don't have to miss anything when you're away from your home or office. Just go to Twitter.com forward slash VoiceAmericaTRN or follow along with us at VoiceAmericaTRN, the Voice America Talk Radio Network. We're on the cutting edge of social media. Can you keep up? These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. Now you can take your favorite Voice America radio program with you anywhere. Sign up for our mobile app if you have an iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry. The Voice America interactive radio player, powered by Aircast, gives you the freedom to listen to any of our programs anywhere, live, and on demand. No registration is required. Listen to your favorite Voice America hosts and discover new ones. Download the Voice America mobile app for iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry, powered by Aircast. Visit the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your question. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at ecu dot edu. Now, 
Back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to the show. Uh, We're coming to you this week from the home office, not the world headquarters of Civil War Talk Radio, because snow has closed East Carolina University. It doesn't take much. We don't get much very often. Uh, But here we are. And I've been so discombobulated by the excitement, and uh, perhaps you noticed the different sound quality, that I forgot to mention. uh, If you're in the North Carolina or South Carolina region and want to uh, hear more of this sort of stuff, uh, I will be speaking this Tuesday night, uh, February 4th at 7 p.m. at the Brunswick Civil Roundtable in Southport, North Carolina. It is the largest Civil War roundtable in the country, apparently. They get hundreds of people attending each meeting. I am looking forward to uh, talking to that size audience, unless it's snow on the ground, in which case there will be four of us. But uh, we will see how it goes. So we left off uh, talking with our guest today, Frank Varney, about General Grant and the rewriting of history. With The, the, uh, the thought was laid out that Grant was perhaps not fully reliable in his character assessments or characterizations of other people. Uh, Frank, maybe a good way to start into this would be to start with a, a, an example. Uh, you, you begin the detailed part of your book with a chapter on the Battle of Shiloh and how uh, Grant remembered it and how General Buell remembered it or how they remembered one another's role in it. Mm-hmm. Uh, that, that's a, a an example of a, that's a controversy many Civil War enthusiasts are familiar with. Mm-hmm. Uh, what did you learn about that? You, you, said you looked beyond what Grant had written into other sources. Mm-hmm. Did you find things of interest there? Yeah, let me give you an example. Um, Grant, for example, uh, anybody who's studied the battle, and I know there's a lot of people out there who are interested in the Civil War, um, they're familiar with the hornet's nest. Um, as things began to collapse, Grant, Grant's army was caught by surprise. Grant later claimed that, for example, he was not the least bit surprised. He said in a letter to his father, we could not have been more prepared had they told us, uh, sent us a, a message several hours ahead of time informing us of their intentions. Yet when the battle began, he, very few patrols out, his army's not entrenched, and he's eight and a half miles away on the wrong side of the river, out of communication with his army. Um, the, the Union camps are overrun. Everything falls back. Um, um, a defense line is established at a sunken road position that becomes known as the Hornet's Nest. Uh, among other people in command, there are General Benjamin Prentice. He's not the only person, but he's one of the people in command. Now, there's a new school of thought. Uh, I know Timothy Smith, for example, Dr. Timothy Smith, um, has mm-hmm. written a very fine book in which he talks about the fact that possibly the hornet's nest is a bit overrated, and that may certainly well be, that it didn't save Grant's army per se. Um, however, what did happen there is there's a several-hour-long delaying action fought. Now, according to Prentice, Grant arrives there several hours after the, the, the battle has commenced and approved Prentice's positions, um, told him to hold here at all hazards, and then rode off to other parts of the battlefield. Several hours later, uh, Prentice, according to him, his report, he, which is written after he's exchanged, he's taken prisoner, um, he reported that he discovered that the rest of the line had collapsed and that he was in danger of being cut off. So he tried to fight his way out back towards the river where he understood the rest of the army was rallying was unable to, um, was low on ammunition, was surrounded, was outnumbered, was coming under heavy artillery fire, and, and surrendered his command. According to the traditional view, which again is beginning to come under question, and, and, and that's fine, 
Um, this was not instrumental in saving Grant's army. It was important, but it was not the major feature, as has traditionally been believed. Okay. Grant's report uh, on Shiloh, um, what he says about, about the whole thing is there's an attack launched. The army fought well. Units and, and officers, all, they, did, they did well, and then they fell back. Now, he doesn't say as much. But he allows the reader to believe that this is, uh, he's got prepared defensive positions. They fell back to successive defensive positions. And one of these fallbacks, um, I'm not quoting him directly here, but this is pretty close. General Prentice uh, allowed himself to get cut off with, and was forced to surrender several thousand of his men. Um, there was no gap in the line uh, at any time except for the interval shortly after General Prentice was, was captured in his, by his command, which sort of implies that Prentice screwed up. Now, in fact, according to Prentice's uh, reminiscence, he, he did what he was ordered to do. Um, the break in the line did not come because Prentice was captured. It had already come. Prentice was captured because there was a break in the line to both sides of him. So it's these, it's these subtle interpretations, these things that, that Grant is doing and saying that allow him to, even indirectly or even in a, in a, just simply by faint praise, cast aspersions on the, office, the, the actions of other officers. He does the same thing at Shiloh with uh, Lou Wallace. Wallace's uh, command is detached uh, several miles away at Crump's Landing, placed there, you know, approved by Grant's command. Um, there are three roads. Uh, one runs along the river, two others farther inland, about equidistant. Uh, his command is at all, you know, he's, he forms his command. He's been told to place units at the head of all three roads. All of these roads lead to what will become Shiloh Battlefield. Grant um, stops there on his way, racing to Shiloh aboard a steamer. Um, to find Wallace has his command formed up already, and he's ready to go. Grant tells him to, ha- to wait in place. I'll contact you. I'll send you orders. He waits a while longer. Uh, he's formed up at the center road, which makes sense. I mean, it's the center point of his command, and it's a good road that runs directly towards the battlefield. He, a messenger finally arrives from Grant, tells him to advance to the battlefield, fall, fall in the right flank of the army. Again, I, I do want to emphasize, it's just as dangerous to use the memoirs of Lou Wallace or Don Carlos Buell or, or Benjamin Prentice as it is Ulysses S. Grant. All of these people are trying to help themselves after the fact. They're trying to justify actions taken or not taken. That, that's understood. But when we have several sources, looking at just one of them, that one usually being Grant, and ignoring the others is, is inherently dangerous. And unfortunately, that seems to have happened a little bit too often. At any rate, Wallace, when he's got this verbal order from a staff officer that General Grant wants you to move to the battlefield, he said, what's the situation? And according to Wallace, the response is, we are driving them. Well, to Wallace, that would imply that the right flank of the army where he's supposed to fall in is at least as far forward as it was the night before. So he starts down the middle road. He's well along. He gets another verbal message from Grant, and the officer says, General Grant would like you to hurry up. There is no indication he's not going where Grant wants him to be, so Wallace accelerates the pace of the march. And it's not until he's, he's traveled several miles before a messenger comes in and says, General Grant wants you at Shiloh, at Pittsburgh Landing, and he wants you there like hell. And Wallace realizes at this point that he's not going to where Grant wanted him. This is the first intimation he's had of that. He takes what he does was probably a mistake. Instead of simply reversing and heading back, he he marches the head of his column back around. He halts everything in place, um, and it takes him too long. He arrives by nightfall 
um, Grant, in his memoirs, says three things happened almost simultaneously. The arrival of Wallace, the arrival of Nelson, who was leading the advanced division of Don Carlos Buell's division, and nightfall. But only nightfall came of any, of any, uh, only nightfall was of any help. In other words, the other two people basically wasted their time. They, they were not useful to Grant. And you have to ask why. Why was Wallace late? Why was Wallace one of Grant's scapegoats, his favorite scapegoats for the, for the Battle of Shiloh? Um, he did, as far as we can tell, what he was ordered to do, at least according to Wallace he was. Um, and, you know, so they, that's that sort of thing. It's this willingness to cast aspersions on others. Now, don't get me wrong. I think Grant was a fine general in many ways. I think he did a lot in the context of preserving the Union. The problem was Grant had his own insecurities. And I think we have to put him in, a, in the proper context to fully understand that. Well, if, stop there in case you have questions. Well, uh, uh, Shiloh is a Union victory. Grant wins yes, the battle, so he doesn't need to exaggerate the Army's readiness ahead of time when it's, it's pretty apparent they were surprised. Uh, but Grant he doesn't doesn't need that they were. He, he doesn't need to do these things. His reputation is secure. Uh, well, see, that's it, easy to... That, that sounds okay now. Right. But, but, but yeah, there's a, you can hold there's a butt coming, obviously. You've got to picture sure. Grant at the time. Okay, here's a guy who had been, um, uh, he'd done very well in the Mexican War, and then had essentially, his personal demons had gotten him out of the army before the war. He had trouble getting a commando when the war began. He's dogged by, by the fact of his, I probably was alcoholic, although he seemed to have it under control for the most part. Um, and it's not his fault. I mean, alcoholism is a disease. But his reputation later, when he writes his memoirs, is secure. But at the time of the battle, it's anything but. There are reports in the newspapers immediately afterwards, the same old um, calumnies that are hurled at most officers when they don't do well, they were drunk. In Grant's case, there is, some, there is a reason to believe that, not at Shiloh, but because it's, it's a history of him that these charges are more apt to be believed. And he begins this whitewash, if you will, immediately after the battle, and letters to Halleck and then letters to home that wind up in many cases in the newspapers. Um, and uh, once you've established the big lie... It's, you, it's hard later on to back off from it. Um, Grant had been a failure all his life up until this point. Remember, when the Civil War breaks out, Grant is living in Galena, where he's considered the town drunk and something of the village idiot. Um, it's a shame, because he's obviously a much better person than that. He's a much more talented person than that. But his small-town reputation is what it is. And he's jealous of that. He's jealous of his successes. He's not about to be a failure again if he can possibly avoid it. So... He he has a similar run in on paper with with Buell, who uh, uh, believes the Army of the Ohio deserves some credit for the victory for showing up mm -hmm. and saving uh, right. Grant's army. Whereas Grant portrays it as, as you pointed out, Nelson's division mm -hmm. of, of Buell's army is, is of no value. It, it, he would have won the battle either way. Mm -hmm. uh, so we have that. Let's get to the uh, uh, the the title subtitle figure in your your book mm -hmm. uh, William Rosecrans, how did he and Grant first interact? Uh, tell us a little bit about that. The first contact that we know of was when they were at West Point. Rosecrans was a couple classes ahead of Grant, and Grant was being subject to a hazing. Uh, he was uh, ordered to guard a water pump. Um, Rosecrans came along and uh, sort of took pity on him and, and relieved him of the duty. Now, oddly enough, this, is, this isn't in the book, but while I was working on this, I, w I take students to Gettysburg. I've been doing it every year since I was in graduate school. 
And this one particular trip, I had a, a brilliant young woman along with me, and her fiancé was there, now her husband. He's now, I believe, a major in the Marines. And he had gone through the military. I actually had two officers there. I had someone from the Singaporean military as well. And when this incident was discussed uh, by the group, these officers said, well, that Grant might not have appreciated that. Even though Rosecrans was interceding for him, Grant might have taken that as, you're, you're a weak sister, as, as the phrase uh, the, the gentleman, one of these gentlemen used, that Grant was, uh, he needed protection. And it's possible that he resented that. Now, I don't know. That's pure speculation on the part of, of, of someone who'd been through a military academy. Uh, as far as in the service, I'm not aware of too much close and con- personal contact I had before the war. During the war, they came in contact um, during the uh, France campaign after Shiloh, when Rosecrans is, is appointed to uh, help command. He's one of the subordinate commanders in, in the Army. Grant will eventually be superseded by Halleck, but Rosecrans is involved in that Army. They, uh, they, uh, I guess the word cooperate is probably too strong. They're, they're, they have a joint plan at uh, uh, the Battle of Ayuka. Tell us uh, about how that works out. Well, it's interesting. Um, Rosecrans, before he went west, was involved in the uh, Rich Mountain campaign with McCullen in what's now West Virginia. And during that campaign, they needed to advance on a Confederate camp. And Rosecrans proposed a plan. Um, that he would take part of the column, swing south, wide swing south, fall on the Confederates. McClellan would hit them from the west, excuse me, and this would win the battle. Now, McClellan had one of those McClellan moments that he seemed to have occasionally. When the battle was joined, he took the sound of heavy firing to believe that Rosecrans was losing, and he immediately rushed back and fortified the camp against the Confederate attack that never came. Rosecrans managed to win the battle, but the Confederate army escaped. He jumped forward a while, about a year. Because, again, there's a tendency to look at, at historical events as singular events, and to us they are. But to the people who lived through them, they were not. Now you've got Rosecrans a year later. He's in, um, in the Corinth, Mississippi region with Grant. Confederates seize the post of Iuka. Rosecrans proposes, again, the same plan, basically, and just as it was too complicated the first time, it's really probably too complicated this time, too, in this age of free radio and telephone communications. Grant will adv- advance westward on Ayuka from the direction of Corinth with EOC Ord's column and attack. Rosecrans will take his column. He'll swing far south and then north. He'll close the, um, the two roads heading south out of Ayuka and uh, finish off the job. He'll, when the Confederates go to retreat, Rosecrans will be locking their line of retreat. This is the original plan. Um, a couple things go wrong. They're not terribly familiar with the terrain. Rosecrans isn't aware until he starts his northward march and he's already behind schedule for the necessity of making a night march, that the two roads he's supposed to cover are farther apart than anticipated, and the land between them is very, very bad. If he divides his force, neither column will be able to support the other. And he's outnumbered. Even his combined columns are outnumbered by the Confederates. If they should fall on him in heavy force, he could be in a lot of trouble. So what he decides to do is move north along the western of these two roads. Picture it like an A with the crossbar set rather high towards Ayuka. When he gets up towards Ayuka, he can swing across that crossbar, the Bay Springs Road, pick up both roads at that point and have a supporting road to communicate and advance at that point, close both escape routes. This could have worked. The problem is Grant and Ord never attack. Um, now, there's been a lot of controversy, which I address in the book, as to what the plan was. Was, was it for Rosecrans to attack and then to, uh, to follow in or vice versa? Indications are, I, for more than just Rosecrans, it seems logical that the, it was supposed to be Ord's attack 
Grant uh, providing the finishing blow and falling on the Confederate line of retreat. But since Grant Norton never attacked, that freed up Sterling Price to detach sufficient troops to um, keep Rosecrans from clearing the Bay Springs Road and closing both roads. And he managed to escape down those roads. It was, it was a Union victory. It did drive the Confederates out of Iuka. Um, it was not by any means a decisive victory. Uh, it could have been much more decisive than it was had Rosecrans been able to close both escape routes. But in Grant's first response to all of this, he agreed with Rosecrans' decision. In his first report, his preliminary report that he sent on to Halleck, he, under, he said he understood why Rosecrans had decided what he had done. It's later on when he writes his second report, after a very acrimonious telegraphic exchange between Grant and Rosecrans, that he begins to become critical. And as time passes, he gets much more critical. So by the time he writes his memoirs, this was a master plan of his that was ruined by Rosecrans' activity. And if you trace, if you all, that's all you look at, then that's the, that's a picture you come away with. If you trace this back up the line, you begin to see that there's a heck of a lot more going on here, uh, and that Grant's story has changed three times um, during during his telling of this. Each in each instance, the worst for Rosecrans. Well, we'll trace those kinds of paths a little more when we come back for our third segment. We're going to take another short break. We're talking today with Frank P. Barney, author of General Grant and the Rewriting of History how the destruction of General William S. Rosecrans influenced our understanding of the Civil War. That's our topic. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, and this is Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Follow the Voice America Talk Radio Network on Twitter. We're at Voice America TRN. You'll get the latest fix on what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and general happenings that you should know about at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Now you don't have to miss anything when you're away from your home or office. Just go to twitter.com forward slash Voice America TRN or follow along with us at Voice America TRN, the Voice America Talk Radio Network. We're on the cutting edge of social media. Can you keep up? Now you can take your favorite Voice America radio program with you anywhere. Sign up for our mobile app if you have an iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry. The Voice America interactive radio player, powered by Aircast, gives you the freedom to listen to any of our programs anywhere, live, and on demand. No registration is required. Listen to your favorite Voice America hosts and discover new ones. Download the Voice America mobile app for iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry, powered by Aircast. Visit the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain inspired really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's p-r-o-k-o-p-o-w-i-c-z-g at ecu dot edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back 
to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking with Frank Barney about General Grant and the rewriting of history. It's a fascinating book that looks at what Grant wrote about various Civil War battles, and specifically those involving William Rosecrans, and compares them to other sources that present a little bit of a different picture. Uh, Frank, a question that I had as I was reading this was to wonder if there's uh, if historians really do accept Grant uncritically, or if there's an element of, of a straw man that to, to make the argument more more stand out in, in brighter relief, and this is the kind of thing uh, anyone writing a dissertation knows this temptation. Sure. Uh, for example, you you, you cite uh, the work of uh, historian James Marshall Cornwall uh, mm-hmm. on several occasions as an example of someone who 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 takes the grant line uh, you know hook line and sinker but and, and you even acknowledge in a footnote that a lot of readers won't know who James Marshall Cornwall is as a historian mm-hmm. uh, and then and, and you address that but the, the broader question is do you have to go looking for historians who are uncritical in their acceptance of grant or uh, is that really is it possible to find that still in the mainstream of the historiography. Unfortunately, it's it's you know, kept tripping over it. Um, Corn, Marshall Cornwall is somebody I happen to have read a couple of of his books, and he was one of the people I had to hand. He was sitting on my bookshelf, so I pulled him off. Uh, but some very fine historians, uh, people like Stephen Woodworth, for example, um, who is a is very well regarded. He's considered rightly, rightfully so, one of the leading historians of the campaigns in the West. Um, Professor Woodworth. Uh, many instances uses single sources. He he looks at something and he's talking about Grant's Grant's book, Grant's memoirs. That's his source. John Moser, who's a wonderful historian, um, he wrote he contributed a book on Grant to the Great Captains series. This is a popular series uh, written by preeminent historians in some cases. I mean, James McPherson did a volume for them, a contribution to it. And in, I don't, I'm not trying to be critical or nasty here, okay? But in one site, I, I believe it's on the Battle of Corinth, might be Ayuka. Corinth, I believe. Professor Moser has a, a paragraph describing the battle, and every sentence in it there's, there's an issue with. Um, there's, some of them are academic historians. Others, like Ed Bonecamper, are popular historians. Shelby Foote was not a historian at all, but he's one of the most ri- widely read and popular writers about the Civil War. He never, he never claimed to be a historian. Mm-hmm. Um, but still, he's, he's very widely read. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, these people, I like, continually fell over this issue. Now, there's, of course, with the age of social media, there's all kinds of people with opinions who like to jump on and, and comment on what you wrote. And I looked at, I try to, look, I try not to look at these, quite honestly. Um, some people love the book, some people don't like the book. Well, I, you tend to find is people who don't like it haven't actually read it, um, <laughs> <laughs> which I found rather odd. But you know, that's they, they, they're, they usually self-identify as a Grant guy, and um, and they don't like any book they perceive as critical of Grant. And and there's no getting around the fact this book is, but it's not an attack on Grant. Um, you know, I give Grant credit where I think it's due. I just don't think it's due all the places he claims credit. Well, one of the people wrote in and said, you know, I really love this book, but I have a problem with this. You keep attacking other historians. One person said, um, and then they quoted it, uh, I, I criticized Stephen Woodworth and Peter Cousins, whose work, by the way, I think is wonderful. I think Peter Cousins mm-hmm. is eminently readable and very good. Um, and I, I said that they, they make a, they, they both tell a story about a supposed panic attack Grant has at the Battle of Corinth, where this chaplain from one of the sea 
uh, describes Rosecrans as racing around, issuing orders to burn all the supplies the day has lost, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But neither one of them give a source for the story. And I said, I, I wish these fine historians had given us a source. And somebody said, we'll see you attack them. Okay, if somebody wants to call me a fine historian, I'll take that attack. You know, I don't think it's really being over the top. And what I tried to point out was, if I simply go in and say, and a lot of historians take Granite as a word, what am I, what am I proving there? What, what, am I, what have I accomplished? I need to go in and say, and here are some examples of that. And that's what I do. And I'm not doing this to try to diminish anybody. I'm not doing this to be harsh on anybody. I'd like people to bear in mind that when this manuscript was originally written, what you're seeing in this book is about two-thirds of the original manuscript. The other third is the core of what's developing into volume two. It's Joseph Hooker, Governor Campbell Warren, uh, and George H. Thomas, with a little, a little bit on, on, on Henry Halleck. Oh, I'm not going into a lot of depth on him. I simply don't have the time or the space. Um, I would like to have done John McClernand, but I have to, you know, I can only do, plus there's, I think there's some other people doing more works on McClernand right now. We don't need to be tripping over each other. But the, um, in the conclusion to the original manuscript, I explain why this happens. And I'm not picking on people, historians, Woodworth, Cousins, people like that, Mosier, when they look at a source and then they claim, okay, well, we know what we need to know about this. When I started doing this research, I was fully convinced that, for example, William S. Rosecrans panicked on the battlefield at Chickamauga and abandoned his army. That his army was starving in Chattanooga until Grant came in and opened the cracker line and saved the day. I believed it. The only reason I happened to have to, to look at it was I was examining Rosecrans in more depth. We think we know what happened in the Civil War. And one of the reasons we do it is this. Cherry, let's suppose you write a book on the Battle of Shiloh. Mm-hmm. And, the, and you cite a source. And I write a book, and I cite you. And Joel Silby comes along and cites me. And Peter Cousins comes along and cites Joel Silby. And the first thing you know, if somebody picks up a book on the Battle of Shiloh, they assume that Grant was not, you know, whatever, whatever, whatever it is we're discussing. Because mm-hmm. they've written eight different places. But when you start tracing it back up the line, you realize what they're doing is citing one another. And eventually, if you go far enough, Often you find it comes to one source, and I, I was surprised to find how often that source was Grant. Um, so a lot of what I thought I knew about the Civil War when I started to dig proved to not be true, but I'm not faulting other people for not doing that digging. That's not what they were looking for. Well, and you're absolutely right. When, when historians write, you can't go to the primary source for every fact you're going to cite, absolutely. especially if it's something that, that's that's peripheral to your, your actual thesis. Right. But uh, what happens, of course, is if Brooke Simpson is writing a biography of, of Ulysses S. Grant, a wonderful biography, um, mm-hmm. he really did a wonderful job, and, and Brooks cites some sources. Now, some of those things he goes back and checks. Other ones he doesn't, it, it's, as you say, it's tangential to what he's talking about. So if he's running a description of the Battle of Chattanooga, mm-hmm. he doesn't go to, he's not going to go back and examine absolutely everything he can't. He doesn't have the time, he doesn't need to. He's writing a biography. Mm-hmm. But what he does is repeat the common wisdom about Chattanooga. And if the common wisdom, I'm just using, I'm using Brooks as an example, I don't remember mm-hmm. off the top of my head what he said about Chattanooga, but um, if, what he, if the common wisdom is wrong, then Brooks is going to be wrong. And Brooks is not often wrong. <laughs> no, true. <laughs> yeah. But, but well, again, then, then of course his stature lends an imprimatur to this. Well, Brooks Simpson says that it must be true, but Brooks hasn't actually gone in and researched it. After reading this, I mean, you do present 
in many cases, compelling evidence of, of mm-hmm. how, first of all, how these chains of, of citation take place mm-hmm. and how multiple sources are really, multiple citations are all based on the same source ultimately, and how in, in many cases Grant is engaged in a certain amount of, of uh, you know, self-interested uh, writing, which, again, is, is, is human and not uh, necessarily uh, anything to condemn, but, but it just does give us a, a distorted picture of a given battle. Right. It, what it made me wonder is how, how much do we start to question the uh, uh, people of our generation will remember the Firesign Theater from 1970s, uh, mm-hmm. a California comedy group that had an album titled Everything You Know Is Wrong. <laughs> yeah. And uh, is that true? Uh, if, if we did the same thing with other memoirs, would we, or, or is Grant a special case? Well, first of all, it frightens me to think how much I might believe it's wrong. But, you know, if I believe it's, if I believe it's wrong, the odds are pretty good. A lot of other people are, too, because we all read the same books. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm sure that there's other stuff out there about the Civil War, certainly, and, and, and undoubtedly about other subjects that we have wrong for the same reasons. It's not laziness. It's not sloppiness. It's somebody wrote something about it, and then, boom, everything went on from there. You go back to the site, this source, and if that person got the source wrong, or even cited it incompletely, which I've seen happen, too, um, then it's kind of the fruit of the poison tree. Everything that comes out of that is going to be wrong. Uh, it is rather alarming. It is, it is kind of worrisome, but until we go back and look at all this stuff, you know, minutely take it apart, it's hard to tell. Uh, I was surprised by what I found out. Um, and quite candidly, in some cases, yeah, I was kind of tickled a little bit. Other cases, I thought, oh, crap, people are going to hate this. <laughs> well, I mean, people do like it. People don't mind being shown they're wrong if they're the first one and they can take it to their friends and be the one to mm-hmm. to one up everybody. But yeah. getting back to Grant specifically, there's a, a conversation you quote where Lincoln was talking with uh, some generals and references uh, a series of Union victories and he mm-hmm. names them and he includes Stones River and Grant interrupts to say that was no victory. Mm-hmm. Uh, to me, that is really a low, petty moment for Grant, that that's not what, Lincoln's not analyzing the war, he's just commenting, I have this dream before victories, Uh, and Grant can't let that pass in front Mm -hmm. of the commander-in-chief without taking a stab at his uh, brother officer, that, there, you start to see, okay, maybe Grant really was this insecure that he had to say things like this occasionally. Mm -hmm. So, that to me is Grant's low moment as a, a historian, what what was the worst thing you found uh, in your research? Well, I'll tell you the truth, it's not in this book. Um, it's in uh, volume two, and it was his treatment of Governor Kemble Warren. Um, Grant, I don't want to give too much away. There's several people out there working on this. Um, it's not a competition. It's not a race. I know a few other people <laughs> who are working on it. We've been in contact and discussing things. Um, Grant deliberately set out to ruin Governor Kemble Warren. Uh, he manufactured a reason to do it, and he did it. He was angry at Warren for testimony Warren gave, I believe, for testimony Warren gave in the Crater Court of Inquiry, uh, when Warren refused to simply accept the fact that everything was Ambrose Burnside's fault, that some of this blame has to go uphill a bit. Um, Meade called him on it, and he, didn't, he refused to name names, but the implication of Warren's answer was that it went beyond Meade. 
again, I discussed this, it's, it's um, the, the central part, really, of Volume 2. And it wasn't enough for Grant to, to remove Warren from command. Um, he, it, he, 18 years the poor guy waited for a court of inquiry to clear his name. He should have had that in 30 days. Uh, when he finally got it and was acquitted, um, it, they waited until he died to, um, before they released the information, before they, they, they cleared his name. Uh, his, among his final words were, I a disgraced soldier. Um, I think this is more, this is Grant's low point. There was absolutely no uh, James H. Wilson. Now, granted, he was a Grant man for a while, and later turned on Grant. Um, he said he thought it was criminal what they did to Wilson. Um, Joshua to, to Lawrence Chamberlain said, much, "Excuse me, to Warren." Joshua Lawrence mm-hmm. Chamberlain said much the same thing. Uh, you mentioned this uh, this sequel, this uh, uh, volume two. Mm-hmm. When when should we look for that? Uh, it's coming along pretty well. I'm uh, I've got to finish up the chapter on Thomas. Uh, I'm tweaking, I'm adding some new information. Of course, you're familiar with the process, and a lot of people aren't, um, how long it takes to put one of these things together. You start doing research on it years before. In some cases, you start doing a whole lot of writing. And then what happens? Other people publish things. Um, mm-hmm. In fact, one recent there. review that liked the book asked why I had not taken Joan Wall's book into account. Um, and I'd never mentioned it, even in the, in the uh, bibliography. The reason mm-hmm. was because when I wrote the first draft of the manuscript, that book wasn't in print. Uh, because I was working on this, I was contacted by the Journal of Military History and asked to review Professor Waugh's book, um, and did. Uh, it was published in the April 2010 issue of Journal of Military History. The review was, uh, I like it. I think it's an excellent book. What it doesn't do is contribute anything to the scholarship about Grant's military campaigns. So I didn't see any real need to, to rewrite the manuscript to pull her, her comments in there. She does an incredibly good job, I think, on discussing the, um, everything that went into um, the, the, the whole Grant's tomb mess, um, where he was going to be buried and how that was going to happen. And I think she did a great job of setting that whole atmosphere, uh, the political rivalries and so forth involved, and how much politics was actually involved in it. But again, it's because of the time frame. So while I was working on this book, several other books came out that I had to go back and, and, and rewrite and add into this one. H.W. Brands just published a book on Grant last year, The Man Who Saved the Union. Um, so I got that out of the library. Um, in fact, I just reviewed it today because I had run out and had a chance to finish with it. But I'm, t- I'm trying to take the new scholarship into account as well. Mm. So right well, now, I'd say probably sometime late next year. Of course, when it's finished and when it's published are two different things. The publisher has their own, their own schedule. So That's true, and we are at the mercy of that when we, when we yeah, write fact, these Dave books. Moore just, uh, I bumped into Dave. Rosecrans now has a statue. Um, since the book came out. It was released in July. In September, Rosecrans finally got a statue uh, in his hometown of Sunbury, Ohio. My wife and I went. There were 41 Rosecrans descendants there. Uh, we were adopted as honorary Rosecranses, which was, I think, quite an honor. <laughs> and I bumped into Dave Moore there, and Dave is, was just wrapping up, or I had just wrapped up a biography of Rosecrans. Um, and it was supposed to be out in December, and now I think they're looking at May or June. Uh, but I think it's going to be extremely good. Well, we'll have to have him on as well when that you comes should. up. He's, yeah, a very well-spoken individual, and he really knows his stuff. Well, I, I will say you certainly do as well in this well, book here, and I'm going to suggest uh, uh, anyone interested, not just in Grant or Rosecrans, but in the process of history, how we know about what happened in the Civil War, will find this a fascinating read and a controversial one that will, will provoke your opinions one way or another. But listeners, you won't want to miss General Grant and the Rewriting of History, how the destruction of General William S. Rosecrans influenced our understanding of the Civil War. It's by Frank P. Varney. Frank, it was a pleasure having you on the show tonight. Thank you. Thank you very much. I appreciate it.
And listeners, as always, thank you for listening to Civil War Talk Radio. Thank you for embarking on a part of American history this week. Civil War Talk Radio with Jerry Prokopovich can be heard live every Wednesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week. (laughs) 